Week 28, embrace the path. I'm coughing a lot today. I promise I don't have COVID. It's just a cough. <laughs> Coughs happened before that thing came out. It's just a cough. Amen. <laughs> well, continuing in our study of Acts, just to recap, Paul has just spent two years in prison at the headquarters of Herod. And he was ministering to a governor and his wife for those two years. Does anyone remember who the governor and his wife were? The governor, his name started with an F. Anyone remember his name? Felix, and his wife was Drusilla. How could you forget that name, right? Everyone wants to marry someone named Drusilla. Anybody named Drusilla in here? Good. (laughs) (laughs) Ministering to Felix and his wife, Drusilla, and now Felix has been replaced by Governor Portius Festus. All the while, Paul's been ministering to them, uh, preaching the word, uh, ministering to their weak places, um, fulfilling his call while being in jail. And while he was in jail, because he was ministering to Governor Festus, Festus gave him some freedoms. In jail, Paul got some freedoms of friends being able to come visit, minister to him, talk with him, freedoms that most prisoners would not get. So Paul has been in prison in, in, the, in the headquarters of Herod for two years after being jailed for many years before that. So Paul has been through it. Remember, he had been led to Jerusalem to preach, and the only thing that God told Paul when God said go to Jerusalem was the only thing that awaits you on the path I'm taking you is suffering in jail time. Not something that would entice you to say, yes, God. But that's all Paul got. Hey, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and what awaits you is jail time and suffering. And Paul's like, yeah, cool, let's go. So Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's going through the suffering. He's going through the jail time, and he's been in prison for two years. So we pick up in Acts 25, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Well, three days after Festus arrived in Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem where the leading priests and the other Jewish leaders met with him and made their accusations against Paul. They asked Festus as a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush and kill him on the way. Now, Felix, we found out last week, he was a very corrupt leader. If you remember, they were trying to flatter him and say he was a great leader, although they knew that he was the one responsible for slaying thousands of Jewish people. He was a former slave and he was bitter about it, so he killed many people. He, 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 was, he, was, he was a corrupt, corrupt, corrupt leader. Well, Festus comes in and he was actually a good man. He was, uh, at this, despite the fact that he didn't believe in God, he was actually a just ruler. He ruled well. And I know that's hard for us to accept, but there are good people who don't believe in God. It's just that if they would submit to God, that the, the good in them would be uh, used to work for the good of God rather than for the good of themselves or the people. And I I think that's a taboo subject we like to talk about in church or we don't like to talk about because we ask the thing about like, well, can people be good and not believe in God? Absolutely. They can be good people. They They can have morals and not believe in him. But what could they do if they turn that goodness toward his goodness? I don't know who that was for, but there you go. That's free. So, Festus is a good ruler, good man, 
And he's ruling well despite all the problems of Felix. And we see a mark of this great leadership because he comes in, he takes over the ruling of the area, and three days after he takes on the responsibilities, he goes right to Jerusalem, the most important city in the province. And even though he just spent two years in prison with Felix, the Jewish leaders are still making accusations against Paul that which were not true. They still accuse the man. As soon as a new leader comes in, because Felix wasn't doing anything to, 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 to convict him, the first thing the Jewish leaders do, they're like, hey, let's talk about Paul. They're still obsessed with getting that man convicted. And not just convicted, but they're still plotting to get him murdered. The first thing they do when, when Festus comes into town, they're like, hey, could you move him to Jerusalem? so that we can get a trial. And it says in the scripture, the reason they said that was why. They were plotting to murder him on the way. Just like we saw last week. They plotted to murder him on the way. They wanted to kill Paul because what Paul had was a threat to their religion, a threat to their tradition, a threat to what they believed, and they wanted him taken out. And as I started to read that, I started to see something. <clears throat> Paul had been in prison in Caesarea for two years, and the whole time, our natural response is thinking, let the man out. He's innocent. Why should innocent people be in prison? Why should innocent people be in chains? But the whole time, while he was in prison, the Jewish religious leaders were trying to figure out how to do what? Kill him. So what if Paul's imprisonment was more of a provision from God than a punishment for what he was doing. What if the chains in prison were actually preserving his life rather than hindering it? Romans 8.28 says this, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That is the most misquoted scripture in the American church. Because what we do is we quote that and we say, God causes everything to work together for our good. No, he does not. He will work it together for your good if you love him and you're seeking out his purpose for you. If you're not seeking out his purpose and you're not in relationship, he will not cause your stupid decisions to work out for your good. He is not going to waste his time working out your dumb crap if you're not going to seek him out. But what we, is this okay? But what we do is we, we puff up this grace message and we tell people, oh, it's all right, honey. You can sin all you want and God's going to work it out for your good. And I know you've made wrong decisions, but God's going to make it work. No, he will not if you do not seek him. So in, in, in walking in the path of God, you've got two indicators. You're either seeking him or you're not. Paul is seeking God. Would you agree? And he is being led every step of the way. Would you agree? So if Paul is being led by God every step of the way, and he's seeking God every step of the way, and he ends up in prison, what if prison was the plan for his path? 
Because prison was preserving the life of the apostle Paul. But what we do is when we see something like prison, we say, well, I don't want to embrace that part of my path because that looks bad. That looks like change. That looks like something that God would not want me to do because we put all this human measurement on what God wants for us and we won't be willing to change our minds and embrace this idea, what if I am in this prison of my life because God, if I'm seeking him, has in fact led me to this place. I'm in this stop. I'm in this pause. I can't get out of it. Why why am I stuck in this revolving wheel? Why can't I get out? What if your prison is actually meant to hold you somewhere because God sees things that you can't, and if you would embrace the path of a prison, God could do more with your prison time than he could if you were free. The question is, do you see truth in, fr- in frustrating circumstances and embrace a path that you don't want to embrace? <clears throat> because we assume that every situation that doesn't seem like it's for our advantage must mean that's not God's plan for me. But could you see opportunity in where you're at if you're truly seeking him? Paul has a plan to go to Rome. God told him this. He said, you're going to go to Rome. And Paul's been in prison for years. The whole time he's in prison, they're trying to figure out how to kill him when he gets out. Let's move him to Jerusalem. Not even when he gets out. Let's, let's, while he's going to trial, let's move him to Jerusalem. Let's ambush the, 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 the horses in the church. Let's kill him. And God's like, I've got a plan for you, and I want you to embrace you being in this jail. Because this jail is saving your life. And seeking God is not just I come to church and I believe in Jesus and I serve in church. Seeking God is day-to-day relationship. Seeking God is including him in every decision. Seeking God is including him in how you react to people that you don't like. Seeking God is how you react to phone calls that you don't want to take. Seeking God is how you address people that you want to cut the throat. You know what I'm talking about. Seeking God is despite what my flesh and what my mind and what my heart want to do, Lord, what would you have? Because I guarantee you, Paul is not thrilled about being in a dungy prison for years and years and years because it's not like prisons today. Prisons today are better than some apartment complexes. They got free Wi-Fi. We got to pay for ours. This is not like central AC and, 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 and laundry. I mean, this is, this is a dungy, nasty place. It's not like Paul's thrilled about being locked up, skin abrasions because of the chains. But he's, he's here for years. And God's like, this is exactly where I have you. This is exactly where I have you because I have a plan for you and I need you in this holding place because I need to preserve you. You see, Paul at this point has been in ministry for about 20 or 30 years. And God says, I'm not done with you yet. I've got plans for you to go on to Rome. 
And not only do I need to preserve your life, but I need you in a place of rest. I need you to be still for a little while. And we don't like rest. We don't like to sit. We don't like when God says, I don't want you to move forward right now. Because the human condition, especially in America, is what's next? What's the next step? Where do I go? And that's usually what we pray for. What's next, God? Where do I go? What's next? What do you have for me? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I got to do something. I got to do something. What if God's step for you is, I want you right here in what you consider your prison? Well, I, I don't know how to accept that. What do you mean that God might want me right here? Look at the scripture in Matthew 11, verse 28 through, uh, through 30. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary, and carry heavy burdens. How many of you ever carried a heavy burden? How many of you want the heavy burden gone? Well, listen, listen. I'm going to break this verse down in a way you've probably never heard. And I didn't get it until last night. Come to me, all you who are weary, all who are tired, all who are carrying heavy burdens, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. You want your heavy burden gone? I'm going to give you rest. And in the middle of your rest, stop trying to move forward and let me teach you something. I will teach you because I'm humble, gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. This is what we do in life. We have a heavy burden. And we don't like to carry it. And it's overwhelming. And we say, God, take it. Take it off my shoulders. It's too much. Would you help me? And then we move into this place of he takes the burden off and lets you rest. So let's use the illustration of debt. I've got this, this heavy burden of debt. I got all this stuff I got I to gotta pay and I, I don't make enough money to pay it. And then eventually, for some, somehow, whether it be um, you, 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 the, 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 um, you pay it off yourself or God sends a miracle or someone gives you a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, whatever it is, somehow the burden is taken off of you and you go into a season of rest from the burden of debt. Well, in that season of light rest from debt, you've got two choices. You can spend the money that you now have or in the rest, let him teach you how to manage what you didn't have before. And if you don't let him teach you how to manage what you didn't have before, you're going to be so obsessed with getting the next thing instead of embracing the rest that you're going to walk right back into the heavy burden of debt. You put that with relationships, you put that with jobs, you put that with depression and anxiety. We always want the burden off. But then when we get into this rest area, we don't sit and just shut up and stop trying to move and let him teach. Because we're, what's next? How do I, I got it off, it's time to go. No, 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 no. Let him teach you because what you carry into the next season should be light. You shouldn't have to carry a heavy one. 
What if Paul is having to learn something in this prison time, in this season of protection, in this season of rest? What if he's learning what it likes to be in chains to minister more effectively to those in chains? What, what, if, what if he is building a witness? We're going to find out by the end of Acts that he is going to have the biggest witness to approach one of the worst Caesars of all time. You know what Caesar he was going to approach? Nero. If you know anything about Nero, he is famous for the biggest slaughter of Christians of all time. But at this time, and you're about to find out, Nero wasn't a bad guy in the first five years of his, of his rule because he was accompanied by good, good people influencing him. It wasn't until he got around bad influence that he became a bad ruler. Paul is building this witness and he has no idea. He's embracing this idea of rest. He's not complaining about prison. He is sitting in prison and he's not saying, I'm going to wait to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to wait to get out. No, he is ministering to Festus and his wife, Drusilla, and he is embracing the time in prison. He is stewarding where he's at in the moment of rest. And there's so many times God leads us on the path to this place where we don't want to be. We're locked up, right? We're, we're locked up in this oppression. We're locked up in this stop, this standstill. And our prayers are always, God, I want to get out. What's next? I want you to do something in me. What's the will for my life? God, what's the next step on my path? And God's like, well, why would I give you your next step if you can't steward well where you're stuck at? Because you say you want these big things, but you can't even witness in the areas where you have very minimal influence. Paul was in 20 or 30 years of ministry, and now the only ears he, he, he has is two or three people in a prison guard. And he's not saying, well, I guess it's just time for me to stop preaching. No, he says, just as I gave all my energy to these hundreds and thousands, I'm going to give the exact same energy to that governor, his wife, and that prison guard. Do you see truth and frustration? We get in this revolving door of frustration and we're in this no moving forward pattern and then we'll come to church and we'll, we want these sermons of break free, move forward, go, get going. It's time to get out of your holding pattern. But what if God wants you in the holding pattern? Because he's got something to teach you. And Paul wasn't aware that there were murder plots going on. But Paul said something to the church in Thessalonica once, and it's in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He says, be thankful in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Because if you're seeking him, he has you there for a reason. And on the opposite side of that, if you're in a place you got to on your own accord because you weren't seeking him and you're in this standstill that you got in on your own accord and your own merit that God had nothing to do with, because let me tell you something about predestination. Everyone always asks, is there predestination in the Bible? Does God plan out all your steps? I'm going to give you the answer right now and no one can ever argue with me because I'm right and they're wrong. God has predestined every step in your life, but that doesn't mean you have walked those steps out. 
He says, I made you before you were in your mother's womb. I had a plan for your life. I had a promise for your life. And my plan was that you walk here, 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 destination. But what happens is the plan was to be born straight and narrow, but we're born into iniquity. You know what the word iniquity means? It means you're born bent and twisted. So you're born twisted already off the predestined path. That's why the first thing you teach your child is no. So you're born already walking off the path and because no one's teaching truth to kids and you're exposing your kids to sorcery and witchcraft and all this other junk, something's instilled in them that you're not even aware of. And by the time someone's 15 and 16, they way over here and God is spending all his time trying to redeem you getting off the path and then the whole time you're an adult, all you hear in church is that Jesus was redeeming you and no one's teaching you how to get back on the path that he planned for you. And then they say, well, all this was part of the plan. No, that was never part of the plan. What was part of the plan is I know you're twisted and I know you're bent, but if you'll seek me, I'll make all this work to get you back on the predestined path. And I'll redeem the years that you lost. And I may have wanted you way over there at year 10. And you may not get way over there till year 30. But I'll redeem the 20 years you lost. That's how predestination works. I've got the path laid out. It's up to you whether or not you access it. Y'all get it? Hmm. That's good stuff. <laughs> Amen. If you got somewhere on your own accord that God did not plan for you, he says, I've got to make a way of making it work. But you've got to lean into the holiness that you have trouble believing. I have called you unto right standing with me. Because I see you as righteous, walk as I see you. So that I can redeem what was lost? Well, I'm not worthy. He knows that. That's why he paid a debt to make you worthy. So that he can redeem the lost steps. You think it was part of the plan for Paul to kill Christians? Think about it. Why does God say honor governing leaders? It was always part of the plan for them to be leaders. But their iniquity has corrupted some. I always use this example, but it's so good. Hitler, great leader, but he corrupted his gift. Or his gift was corrupted. Paul honored the leaders. And we're about to see where it takes them. Verse 4 and 5. The Jewish people are trying to get Paul to Jerusalem so they can kill him. But Festus, good leader, 
replied that Paul was at Caesarea and he himself will be returning there soon. And so he said, those of you in authority can return with me. If Paul's doing anything wrong, you can make your accusations. He was so good that he said, I'm not moving that man. You can come back with me if you want and you can make all the accusations you want. And there are so many of us who are in this place of we want to get it over with. We want to just go on to Jerusalem and get it over with instead of waiting for the time to come to get out of the place. We're so begging to move forward and God's like answer is like not yet. And we get so frustrated with not yet. Well, I've been in this place for too long, God, and God's like, you act like you're telling me something that I don't know. I've been here, God, I've been here 20 years. I've been here 10 months. I've been here, God's like, I know, not yet. You want to know why sometimes he says not yet? Psalm 32, 8 through 9. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and I will watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or a mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. You know what that means? Some of us are so obsessed with move, move, accomplish, accomplish, do, do. And God's like, let me put a bit in your mouth and hold you back for a moment. Because you are trying to do way too much. He says, if you'll seek me, I'll guide you on the best path. And he says, I'll watch over you. What does that mean? He says, I see all the stuff that your fleshly eyes are incapable of seeing. So he says, Paul, you don't see that there's all these assassinations attempts. You don't see that going to Jerusalem is going to be the worst path, even though in your flesh it's the quickest path. But if you'll let me guide you, it may seem like you're going an extra 20 steps, but I assure you it's the best path. But the human condition says, Oh, well, uh, the quickest distance between two points is a straight line, so we got to do a straight line instead of going. No, and God's like, well, that's not necessarily the best path. If it was the best path, best path, why would he create multiples? He said, let me guide your best path because I, because I see everything. Verse 6. This okay? About eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea. And on the following day, he took a seat at court and ordered that Paul be brought in. When Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious accusations that they could not prove. Now, remember last week, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, but he ain't got no proof of the accusations. What is the accusations? You ain't good enough. Where's the proof? Because God made me good enough. You can't do it. Where's the proof? Because God's called me. You, where's the proof? They're trying to say, Paul did all this stuff. There's no proof. So verse 8, Paul denied the charges. I'm not guilty of any crime against Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government. So here he is in the same place again. A standstill again. He's on trial again. His life's in danger again. He's accused again. He is denying, he is denying charges again. And again, the accusations could not be proven. And so often, we go through these times of again and again. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I got to go through this again. 
I dealt with this yesterday. I dealt with this last year. I dealt with this in my last relationship. I dealt with this with the first kid. I dealt with this with my first grandson. I got to deal with this again. I, again. I dealt with this with the last job. I got to do this again. God, when are you going to give me a good boss? I got to deal with that again. Mm. And when I was looking at this passage, it reminded me of a people who had that exact same notion. It was the people of Israel fleeing from Egyptian captivity. The story of Moses. They're running from the Egyptians, and look what they do in Exodus 14, verse 10. They're running from Egypt. And it says, as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up in panic when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. Again. And they cried out to the Lord, and, and they said to Moses, Why'd you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? Why'd you done this to us? Why'd you make us leave Egypt? Why'd you make us leave our captivity? Why'd you make us leave slavery? Didn't we tell you this would happen? (laughs) We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Why we got to do this again? It was better back there. God, I told you, if you would have just kept me in my last job, I wouldn't have to be dealing with that same crap in this job, but at least I'd know the people. Why are you doing this again? Why we got to go through all this mass stuff again? Why we got a a bad government again? New party, same problems. Why we got to go through it again, God? I'm in a new church. Why why do I got to go through this stuff again? Again, 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 again. So Moses does the pastoral thing. Don't be afraid and just stand still. Watch the Lord rescue Egyptians. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. If I was Moses, I probably wouldn't be that chill. Y'all just stay calm. It's going to be all right. And the whole time, you know, Moses is doing stuff like staffs into snakes and, and, and you know, uh, plagues of Egypt and showing the power of God. And he's doing all this crazy stuff that you just don't see. And they're like, we told you. We know you got God and all that. And we, you know, we know that you talked to fire and bushes, but we told you. And then, this is the greatest thing what God says. I love this. Look at verse 15. The God, God says to Moses, why y'all crying? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. Do you realize how stupid that sounded to them? The Egyptians are coming. They're dealing with the same junk again and again and again. And God's like, why y'all crying? Raise a stick to the ocean. They at a, a dead end, a sea, 
They crying out, dead end, we getting killed by the Egyptians. Why'd you lead us here, God? Why did you bring us on this path? I'm at a dead end again. Nothing's going to happen. And then God tells them to do the most stupid thing. Raise the staff to the sea. And we know the story, right? The sea parts. But let's think about that for a second. They don't know how long that water is going to be back. Can you imagine when they saw the water apart? If they already complained about, why did you lead us on this path? I guarantee you the next thing they're probably thinking is, I ain't going in there. Or, well, well, Moses, how long do you think that that was just coincidence that you raised your staff in the water? I mean, how long do you think it's going to be there? It ain't, I mean, what are we going to do? The Egyptians, but, but you notice what the end of the scripture said? It says, God's glory will be seen in your enemy. Throw that last verse up again, please, if you don't mind. Just hit clear all and do 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They will charge me after the, my great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh, his troops, his chariots, his... Ch what was the glory? If you read... We always talk about how just the sea collapsed on them, right? But if you read the story, it says the Spirit caused them to be confused and they turned on themselves and they were stuck on the path. They the government didn't know what to do. And the, church is, and the church is complaining about when's the government going to let us get back together? When they going to let us worship together? What path are you following, church? They confuse and they don't know what to do and they put more faith, faith in a piece of cloth. Which again, if you want to wear, I'm not, don't take me the wrong way. Honor Things, do what you need to do, but <laughs> what, there's nothing wrong with science. There's nothing wrong with policies. There's nothing wrong with procedures. But take it all and put it before the king of kings and say, is this what we do? Or do you want us to do something stupid like raise a rod to the COVID? Because that's only in the Old Testament times. But what if the stupid thing is come together and pray? But you won't come here because you worked all day and you're too tired to come pray. Because what, oh, that's weird. Because what does the American way teach you? When you, may, when you need to make a decision, we're, we're taught, well, let me sleep on it. When Jesus had to pick the 12 apostles and disciples, you know what the scripture says he did? It says he prayed all through the night. And then he rested. And when we have to make big decisions, what do we do? Well, let me just sleep on it. Or what if the answer is do something stupid like sacrificing your rest, pray all through the night, and you'll get the most rest you've ever had. But we won't do that. Because we won't get that foolish. We won't get that crazy. Am I talking to anybody? Now my iPad won't even turn on. 
Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith shows the reality of what we hope for, the evidence of things we cannot see. You see what looks like wrong, but maybe you should have faith to walk right into what seems totally off. You know what I find funny? And I hope I don't regret saying this. But all these schools are meeting together and people are getting supposedly COVID and all these restaurants, people are getting COVID. We've had 100 people some weeks at Relentless and 80 people and 60 people and I have not had to close the doors one time. And I won't. And let me just, on the record, and if, and if, I, and if, and the, and if a government official hears this on the podcast, I'm talking to you, ma'am or sir. If someone gets COVID, I'm going to disinfect, I'm going to vacuum, and we're going to have church next week. Because, because my authority is not the principality of a disease. It's God the Father. And if Moses can walk through plagues, I can walk through this one. Anyways, verse 9. <laughs> That's right. Then Festus, wanting to please the Jews, asked him, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand before trial? He's given Paul an easy way out. Let's go ahead and get this over with. But Paul replied, no, this is the official Roman court. I ought to be tried right here. You know very well I'm not guilty of harming the Jews. If I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I'm innocent, no one has the right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Nero. Festus conferred with his advisors and then replied, very well, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Now Paul could have very well said, well, I'm tired of being stuck. I'm tired of being right here. Let's go ahead and get it over with. But Paul remembered something. I'm called to go to Rome. And if I go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. And a lot of times, that's exactly what we want. We just want to give up and have it done over so we can start over and just be done with it. And Paul's like, no, I, my only guide is the path of God. And if I have to be in jail for two more years, I'm not going back. Because in Acts 23, 11, just to remind you, he said, that night the Lord appeared to Paul. Be encouraged, Paul, just as you've been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Paul knew I've got to go there. I'm embracing my path, even if I've got to stay in captivity for protection, for rest, for whatever it is. Verse 13, a few days later, a king arrives, King Agrippa. King Agrippa arrives with his sister Bernice to pay their respects to Festus. Well, during their stay of several days, Festus disclosed Paul's case with the king. There's a prisoner here, he told him whose case was left for me by Felix. Let me tell you all a little bit about King Agrippa. King Agrippa was known to be an expert in Jewish laws and customs. Now, he didn't have jurisdiction over Paul. He couldn't make a ruling about the case. But he was going to be a very good person for Festus to get some advice on how to handle this case. But King Agrippa had a lineage that many people look over. Would y'all like to know the lineage? His great-grandfather was the one who put out the sentence to kill the babies trying to kill, guess who? Jesus. His grandfather was the one who beheaded John the Baptist, and his father was the one who martyred James. 
So he was next in line, and Paul, God put Paul in the pathway of that lineage. Not exactly the thing you want to see on someone's background report. But he embraced the path. Because he leaned into, God, I'm seeking you. And we, I talked earlier about how, how do you know if it's God's path for you or not? Stop looking at the path. And start seeking him. If you seek him in all you do and honor him in all his ways and your ways, stop looking at your circumstances because he will guide you into where you're supposed to be. So whether you're in it right now or not does not matter. You start to seek him, and he says, I'll work it all out for your good, for those who seek me, for those who love me. And when you start seeking him and loving him and focusing on, focusing on him, you're going to be so obsessed with the love of the Father and the ways of the Father that prisons and jails and bondage, it won't move you. Failure won't move you because you're realizing he's got my path. He's leading me. He told me to do this. You, you, that's why the burden's light because you don't have to worry about any circumstances anymore because you're not having to worry about the consequences of your actions. It's the consequences of his decisions, which are always good, even if it looks like prison. So Paul is coming against a king with a lineage of trying to kill Jesus, killing John the Baptist, killing James. And in verse 15, Festus starts talking to King Agrippa about Paul. He says, when I was in Jerusalem, these priests and these Jewish elders pressed charges against him and asked me to condemn him. I pointed out to them that the Roman law does not convict people without a trial. They must be given an opportunity to, to, to confront their accusers and defend themselves. When his accusers came here for the trial, I did not delay. I called the case the very next day, ordered Paul brought in, but the accusations made against him weren't any of the crimes I expected. You know, he saw riots. He was expecting slaying in the streets. He was expecting something. And he says, instead, it was something about the religion and a dead man named Jesus. And Paul says, the dude's alive. That's the crime. And then, and then he says, I was at a loss. I don't know how to investigate that. So I asked him whether he would be willing to stand trial on these charges in Jerusalem. But Paul appealed to have his case decided by the emperor, so I ordered that he be held in custody until I could arrange to send him to Caesar. Festus is like, I don't know how to trial a man who claims that a dude that was dead is alive and now is affecting the Jewish religion. How am I supposed to put him on trial? Which is cool because Festus doesn't know much about Jesus because remember, this is a new concept in this day. But it does show one thing. They're talking so much about it that Festus knows one thing. Paul's all about a dude who they said was dead, but now he's alive. That's all they know. And look at King Agrippa's response. 22. I'd like to hear him myself. And Festus replied, you will tomorrow. Because Paul embraced the path up to this point in Acts, he went to preaching to Gentiles that no one liked, to Jewish people that were bound up with religion that caused riots, tried to kill him, and now trying to convict him 
and still trying to kill him. And now he has not only spoken to the governor Felix and governor Festus, but now he is getting the opportunity to preach to a king, a prisoner. That does not happen. But he embraced the path. Can you imagine the doors that would open if we would just embrace his path by seeking him along the way? And look what happens in verse 23. I hope this has been good today, y'all. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice arrived at the auditorium with great pomp, accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city. Do you realize what just happened? Paul embraced the path of years in prison. He has preached to crowds of Jewish people and Gentiles, and now he's preaching to a stadium of governors, high officials, and kings. A stadium. Like the Colosseum. Like, like big. Not the Colosseum, he's not in Rome yet, but this is a big stadium. Like an amphitheater. Festus ordered that Paul be brought in. And then Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are here, this is the man whose death is demanded by all the Jews, both here and in Jerusalem. But in my opinion, he's done nothing deserving death. However, since he appealed his case to the emperor, I've decided to send him to Rome. But what am I supposed to write to the emperor? There is no clear charge against him. Remember, they don't have what? Evidence. So I brought him here before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I might have something to write. Because it makes no sense to send a prisoner to the emperor without specifying the charges against him. He's about to preach to a king, governors, and an entire auditorium because they need to know what are the charges on this man. And he could have complained about prison, but instead, this prisoner was just given the biggest mic in the province. And I wonder how many times we say no to the smallest things, which are actually the doors to the largest opportunities. And someone shared a word last night about, you know the scripture about the, the father in the, 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 in the vineyard and wanting to plant fruit in the vineyard and uh, it was a fig in the vineyard, a fig tree and, 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 and the father wants to cut the, 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 the fig tree down and, and Jesus is saying, give it one more year. Y'all remember that scripture? You know the interesting thing about that is that the, the, the grapevine in the vineyard only produced once a year and figs produced twice a year. And there's, but in the midst of all these grapes, he didn't want to give the chance of a fig in the parable. And there's so many times in church, we always look for the person with the most fruit. But we want to invest in the person that is most unlikely to have it. And we dismiss so many people. And I believe a church on fire like this one, we got to start looking at the people who seem like they ain't no chance in Hades that they got something and start realizing that God's got greatness on them. And if we would stop dismissing them and invest in them, like Paul, a killer of Christians, 
And now he's preaching to a theater of kings and governors about the very king that he denied? Do you realize what would rise up in America? We've gotten everything backwards. So here's chapter 26, and I'm only four minutes over, so I'm doing really good. I'm going to go through this quickly, don't worry. Paul preaches. Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak your defense. This is interesting stuff. So Paul gesturing with his hand. I said last night, everyone makes fun of me talking with my hands, but I'm just like the Apostle Paul. It's all right. (laughs) He started his defense. I'm fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders, for I know that you're an expert on all the Jewish customs and controversies. Now, please listen to me patiently. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. I'm going to read through this quickly because we've heard this preaching about 25 times in Acts because Paul has had to defend himself again and again, right? He says this, I love verse 5. He says, if they would admit it, they know I've been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. They won't even admit that Paul used to be their leader. Do you get the gravity of that? He says, if they would just admit it, they would tell you I used to be one of them. Paul was the one that was watching Stephen get stoned to death. He was just standing there. And now they won't even embrace him, which is a beautiful picture of what it means to be strangers and aliens to this world. Because when you are reborn into the identity of Christ, let me just be real with you, the people who were of your old lifestyle should no longer be able to identify with you. They should see something different and they should not be able to connect with you and they should ask why and you tell them because I no longer stand for what you stand for. And if there is no longer, if there is no distinction between that, you need to check why. Take that home. Now, verse 6, I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promises made to our ancestors. In fact, that's why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day. They share the same hope I have, yet your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus and Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers here to be sent to prison. I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. And he says, one day I was on such a mission to Damascus armed with authority and the commissioning of these leading priests. And about noon, your majesty, I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun and shone down on me and my companions, and we all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic. And isn't that incredible that Paul just points out something that God spoke his own language? We try so hard to hear the voice of God in a language that's not ours. Thinking this is going to be something foreign and distant. You know, we're, we're waiting on that. You know, oh, Heather, I am God the Father. 
He talks to you in a language that you understand. Stop trying to make him so far away. When he, If he lives inside of you, you're going to understand him very easily and simple. We try to complicate the voice of the Father. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's useless for you to fight against my will. I love that. Why are you fighting against my will? You're not going to win. Who are you, Lord? That's the craziest question ever. Who are you, Lord? Like, who are you, Jonathan? Like, you know the name already. Why, why are you at? Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get to your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you've seen me and tell them that I will show you, it. I will show you in the future. I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. Isn't that funny? God's like, I just bonded you. Now I'm calling you to go open their eyes up. I'd be so mad at God. So they, they may turn so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive, receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by, by faith in me. But look at that. Keep that scripture up there. There is something so important that we skip over and we get wrong in teaching so much. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan. You ever realize when we talk about from darkness to light, we always assume that darkness means the power of Satan? That's not what it means. Darkness to light and from the power of Satan. Darkness to light means from ignorance to knowledge. People who are living in darkness have no knowledge of God. Therefore, there is no need for Satan to waste his time with his power, which is simply nothing than a mere accusation. But what Christians do is they go into people who are sending it up, who have no knowledge of God, and they start trying to loose them from the grip of Satan. They're not in the grip of Satan. They're in darkness and they have no knowledge of God. You can't loose them from the power of Satan until you bestow upon them the knowledge of his goodness. That's why he says go to them in love because you've got to pull them out of unknowing into knowing and now that they know, you can help release them from the power of Satan to God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Amen. Darkness to light. Light in darkness. Bring knowledge to the unknowing and then release them from the power of Satan. Because he'll come against knowledge. You realize what Paul is saying? Paul says, king, people, governors, I was on a path and God interrupted and said, embrace my path. And he says, even though you're blind, get up, get moving, and tell everyone what you've seen. I know you're blind, but now you see. So even though you're blind, tell everyone what you just saw. Do not let what you can't see prevent you from telling people what you have seen. You have to embrace that in every single thing you go through. 
He says, embrace that path. Embrace the path, no matter what. And then Paul continues. He says in verse 19, And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I'm wrapping up. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, all throughout Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they must repent of their sins, turn to God, prove that they have changed by the good things they do. Prove that they have changed by the good things they do. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time so that I can testify to all you. From the least to the greatest. You, you, do you realize he just called all his prison time, what I talked about in the beginning, protection. He says, God protected me so that I could walk on his path. I started with preaching to people that none of y'all liked, that you called poor, pitiful, and saveless, and they couldn't be redeemed. And now, because I embraced that path of talking to people that no one wanted to talk to, now I'm talking to all y'all people with all y'all pomp and all y'all circumstance. Hmm. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead and in this way announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. Look at verse 24. Suddenly Festus shouted, Paul, you're insane. Too much study has made you crazy. Paul replied, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is the sober truth. Why did he say he was insane? Because Paul just said, I've been in prison for the past whatever how many years. I'm happy. I've been protected. And I'm not trying to get free. I'm just here preaching. He says, you have spent way too much time studying and spending time with your God that has made you crazy and insane. That's probably why he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Maybe the more we seek his presence, the more foolish we're going to look. Foolish like being happy about being in a prison. Being happy with being in the waiting. Being, having peace about not moving forward. Getting excited about God saying, pick up your staff to a raging sea and walk right through it. Maybe it's foolish for the church to start Stop, st stop being discouraged about what's going on in our nation and start getting excited that, that the only thing that this crazy, corrupt nation can turn to now is us. So let's give them a reason. What if we're that stupid and foolish? But I, it, it's, it's, it's hard for me to see that church. Because we're praying that America would be redeemed, and God's like, well, I, I'm doing, I've got to do it through a people because I've already redeemed you. But you've got to show them that. You've got to carry it out. You have to walk out the redemption. Verse 26, and King Agrippa, 
knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. You know how foolish that seemed to them? Paul, who's been in prison for years, just said, I want all of you to, be fr- I want all of you to have great lives. I want you to be saved in the name of Jesus. And I hope that all of you get what I have except for this that you put me in. He just blessed those who bound him because he embraced the path. And then the king, this is, this is the coolest last two verses of, the, of these two passages to me. But don't, don't put it up there yet. Don't, you leave, don't put 31 up yet. Stay right here, okay? The king, the governor, Bernice, and all the others stood and left. Now, through the past two chapters, remember what has happened. They tried to move him to Jerusalem. He denied the trial. He appealed to Caesar because he didn't want to go back, right? He's gone through all this stuff. He just preached to a crowd of governors and kings in the audience. And look at verse 31. As they went out and talked it over and agreed, this man hadn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. In verse 32, a king Agrippa said to Festus, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. I read that and I was like, you got to be kidding me. And the human mind, our first thought is, well, Paul, if you would have just trusted in God, you wouldn't have had to go through all this. But no, no, no. He did trust in God. That's why he went through all this. Because his path was never freedom yet. His path was, I've got to get to Rome. And my path to Rome was the most bound up thing that you could ever imagine. The next two weeks, we're going to find out the next thing he does, he has to be a prisoner on a ship that sinks. Spoiler alert. And it all has to do with getting to Rome. And I'm, I'm thinking the whole time, like, God, can't you just give the man a break? He's following you every step of the way. And God's like, remember, you follow me, I will guide you in the best path. But my ways are higher, my thoughts are higher, and my path ain't going to look like what you want it to look like. Because it's all about one thing, fulfilling my purpose and my will for your life. And you know what his will for your life is? To make his name great. And it's individual. There's something about you. There's something about your skills. There's something about, there's something about you that he wants to do something great with. And he says, if you'll seek me, I'm going to do great things through you. But you have to embrace this crazy behind path. And it's going to look stupid. It's going to look foolish. It's going to look like it's backwards. But I will use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And I'll do great things through my people. Jesus conquered death by dying. How much more foolish can you get? 
How, how did the Father love us? He kicked us out of the garden. We always think that's punishment. That was not punishment, y'all. And that's what we preach. God punished Adam and Eve by kicking them out of the garden. It was not punishment. It was protection. Well, how do you figure? Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they ate of the fruit, they fell into sin. Which means in a fallen state, there was one more tree. You know what the tree was? The tree of life. If they would have eaten from the tree of life in a fallen state, they would have spent life dead. So God says, let me, kick, let me take you out of this garden and I'll protect that tree of life with angels and fiery swords. And then in Revelation, you know who is referred to as the tree of life? Jesus. You, ain't never, you never heard that, have you? That, that, that's how good he is. Because it don't look, our minds can't wrap around it. So I just want to encourage you today, seek him and embrace the path. Amen? Let's stand.